Hello, and welcome to episode 76 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me as usual is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love Tennis podcast, and as has been the case for a couple of years now, the 30 Love podcast really peaks at the U.S. Open when when Carl has access to all sorts of great guests. And uh, as opposed to my usual drive-by endorsement of my co-host podcast, I want to take one extra second here because those of you who are going to hear this and think, oh, I really should listen to this 30 Love podcast, you're going to look at the feed or Carl's Twitter or whatever, and you're going to be overwhelmed by how many choices you have. I mean, there's been, what, like 10 or 12 new episodes during the U.S. Open? Is that right, Carl? Yeah, 12 during the Open, although it definitely peaks in quantity, I hope, in quality, but I don't guarantee that. <laughs> yeah, that's always the risk. So if if you have a new listener, Carl, uh, come U.S. Open time, and they're looking at this list, are there any of this year's U.S. Open podcasts you'd recommend as a good starting point? I love all my children, Jeff. Yeah, we're talking about your episodes, you're not your children. <laughs> I, I mean, I would certainly start with the most recent because it's it was recorded after the end of the open. So it, it covers it all. And it's a short one. Uh, that's with Jason Gay and Tom Parado. I used to work with at the wall street journal. And I had a lot of fun talking to the bookstore coordinator, uh, at the U S open, just a little color for what is involved in volunteering at the open and what it's like to have been there for 27 years and who you've met, what you've seen. And I mean, I think one of the big themes at the Open or one of the big stories was the unveiling of the Althea Gibson sculpture outside Arthur Ashe Stadium. So talked to the sculptor and he told some pretty great stories about getting the sculpture from Italy to the U.S. It is giant. So it was quite an undertaking. So uh, maybe start with those. I'm glad you mentioned the uh, Althea Gibson stuff because I was just thinking about this during the last couple of days of matches that there are, there's what, almost 20 match courts at the U.S. Open and two of them are named. I mean, the whole thing is the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center and then the main stadium is Arthur Ashe Stadium and then the, the second biggest court is Armstrong, named after Louis Armstrong, the jazz musician. Uh, and I think in a, a podcast, maybe last year, we, we were speculating about how long it would take before something was named after Serena or Venus or both. But, I mean, why isn't something named after Althea Gibson? It seems like there should be, shouldn't there? Yeah, before the news of the, the sculpture plan came out, there was some speculation that maybe Grandstand, which is the third largest stadium, would be named for but certainly, I mean, she's she spent much of her life living in Harlem, and she had great breakthroughs at the U.S. Open, and she's a hero of American tennis and a hero of, um, you know, breaking the color barrier in tennis at a time when it was a much steeper, tougher, thicker barrier than what Arthur Ashe faced, not, not to say he didn't face a lot of obstacles. So it, it did seem overdue, and as great as the sculpture is and as prominent a spot as it has and as as much as people seem to notice it by stopping and taking photos with it on the grounds, I wouldn't be surprised if there's more for Gibson in the future on the grounds. Yeah, it's, it seems like as traditional as it is that courts be numbered, that it would make a lot of sense uh, for these tournaments to aggressively use this promotional power to, to name the courts. I guess a lot of, a lot of tournaments have 
literally taken that promotional power and sold it. And you have, you know, High Sense Arena in at the Australian Open and lots of lots of tournaments have at least one or two courts that are named after sponsors. And I, I, I'm glad the US Open hasn't gone that route. So maybe I shouldn't encourage them to rename their courts. Maybe maybe court fifteen is better than Bank of America court or something. But uh, but I mean it seems like there's an awful lot of, of tennis heroes, both specifically heroes because of their tennis achievements and also because of their achievements outside of tennis like Arthur Ashe and Althea Gibson and so many others Billie Jean King among them um but yeah it seems like there's a big opportunity there that they haven't fully exploited yeah and it's it's not like the numbers at the U.S. Open make a hell of a lot of sense at least not to me I tend to have a pretty good sense of direction and I still check the map throughout the tournament to remember where certain courts are so I I may have just as easy a time and others as well if they're named after memorable people and yeah when you name them after someone those people become more memorable because people start to uh associate with them i i uh took two friends yesterday for a tour of the grounds and seeing juniors in wheelchair finals and they didn't know who arthur ash and althea gibson were before they were not really tennis fans and because there were things honoring them they found out who they were and looked them up and uh were pretty interested so yeah there's a as much as i love the number 15 and want people to be aware of it i think there's potential for for more awareness yeah that's funny i never thought about this but i i feel the same way the i'm sure the the layout and the numbering system made sense at some point but as the the grounds have been remodeled and and some of the grandstands have gotten bigger and some courts have been removed and so on and so on uh, the numbering system doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So I tend to remember the court's location by memorable matches I saw on them. So so now there's the court that I saw where I saw Ryan Harrison in qualies. There's the court that I saw, I think, of on Dykeman in, in, I think, first round last year. These are obviously the most memorable matches in U.S. Open history I'm talking about now. Um, but th- it's easier to remember that than, than remember, you know, exactly how they laid out four, five, six, seven, nine, ten and so on. Jeff can never play. find the stadium courts because he's never seen memorable matches there because he only watches the cool matches on the outer courts. I have seen some amazing matches on Armstrong. I don't think I've ever seen any. Nah. I saw Victoria Azarenka's first mixed doubles slam title on Ash. So take that, Carl Bialik. Damn it. I mean, it, it, that's that's probably like the most hipster thing to say about seeing on seeing a match a memorable match on ash but at least it was something i have been there i think um, i could top you i remember seeing udan and sock win mixed on ash mm, that is that is pretty hipster although they are americans i mean i saw belarusians all right advantage jeff shall yeah. we talk about this year's open this this year's open i thought you said the sears open and it's like we shouldn't sell the whole the whole thing to a, a failing department store yet this year's open one thing before we get there this is totally random trivia but i find it interesting i want to throw it out there and also this is my this is my one very short plug for the new tennis abstract which we talked about a couple weeks ago before it was fully operational but uh, if you're listening you're presumably into this stuff um, all the player pages on Tennis Abstract, at least for notable players, uh, are updated in my new format, which has like an order of magnitude or two more information than the old player pages do. So um, they're way more interesting to browse, for one thing, if you're not exactly sure what you're looking for. If you know you want to find out some cool things about Daniel Medvedev now that he's famous, uh, 
it's a great place to start. You can get, you know, serve speeds. You can get match charting project data that's really obscure but interesting stats. You can get point-by-point -point stuff like different types of, of crucial points and games converted. Um, but one of the things that I, I like bringing out front and center is that every player has a head-to-head -head table of the players they've played the most often. And for some reason, for me, that's the one that is really entertaining. Uh, when you, when you dig deeper beyond the the really famous guys and the really famous head to heads, we don't often pay attention to some of these player matchups that have have come up many times. And I tweeted something about I can't remember the details now. I thought I had it on the tip of my tongue, but there was a there are always these weird symmetries where you know a, a player is ten and zero against one guy and zero ten against another guy. Um, and was it, it Batista Agu? It was Batista Agu. I can't remember who the um, who the opponents were. I remember he's O and something against Fed, but I can't remember who he who he owns. Uh, but the the thing I wanted to ask you about, Carl, is see what your gut is on this. I stumbled on the one of Grigor Dimitrov's uh, most common head to heads when I was you know checking up on him before his semifinal match. So one of his most common head to heads after he's played Rafa thirteen times and lost twelve, but. Um, he's played David Goffin 11 times, which is his second most common head-to-head. -head. It's Goffin's most common head-to-head. -head. So 11 times. Carl, who do you think is leading that head-to-head? -head? Dimitrov. Dimitrov is, in fact, leading the head-to-head. -head. What do you think the record is? 9-2. and two. Pretty close. It's 10-1. and one. Wow. Yeah. And... And the nutty thing about it is, I, mean, we, I think once you start thinking about it, you can call to mind a few prominent matches. Like I mean, they played, they played each other twice in the tour finals. The year that they played each other in the final, there, uh, I think they played a, a Sofia final and a Rotterdam semi. So I mean, we've seen them play each other. But the first two times they played each other was, I think, 2010, back to back weeks in futures tournaments in Germany. So we were speculating a couple weeks ago about how rare it is to see really great players in challengers or slam qualifying. And by extension, it would be extremely rare to see two future greats face off in, at the lower levels. But there were probably like three people sitting in the crowd watching Grigor Dimitrov and David Goffin play each other in futures tournaments in Germany nine years ago. But 30 people are telling people now that they were in the crowd. I, I think it I think it's funny that you're saying how rare it is to see future greats at futures and you changed the word futures to like low level tournaments. But I guess maybe if, if some something is calling itself futures, then it's unlikely to actually have the the future greats. It, it does seem maybe not that surprising they played in back to back weeks because people tend to do the circuit and those two were probably by far the best two players. Right. That's true. Yeah, you you do see that often, and and when you're looking at players who are like breaking into the top 200, often in their recent past, they'll have they'll be playing these circuits, and maybe they they faced the same guy in three or four consecutive weeks in the semifinal or final. So yeah, that that's true. But simply the fact that they played each other at the futures level at all, I mean that that's pretty remarkable. There can't be very many matches at that level where you have two future top 10 players going head to head. Yeah, and then the, yeah, they played the final of the tour finals a couple of years ago, and I, it would have been great if someone had asked before the final in a press conference, Grigor, 
you uh, you played him in 2010 in Futures. What do you, what do you think is gonna um, be relevant from that match to this final? <laughs> yeah, do you think he's improved since then? Are there any new new weapons you're worried about coming from Gofan? So, any any final comments on that, Carl? I was gonna move on to things that people might actually want to hear about, but I don't want to rush us. <laughs> well, just the um, I think it's hilarious when players just played each other a week ago on tour and they're like, this is totally different match, totally different conditions. But in this in that case, it would have been. And yeah, I mean, I guess the other point is this almost was relevant to the U.S. Open because Goffin came within a round of, of playing Grigor. And given that the guy who knocked who prevented that matchup uh, turned out to be slightly injured it really could have happened it could have been his chance for redemption in match number 12 yeah there you go and we we do have a good segue here because we're talking about these frequent matchups um quick turnaround rematches and both of the u.s open finals were rematches from the rogers cup um Let's. I wanted to start talking about Nadal Medvedev, and that ended up being an almost five-hour match. Really impressive. I think. Uh, I think a lot of people expected a good match, but at the same time, everyone was aware of how lopsided the Montreal final was. It wasn't that three in love, Rafa, just really one-sided. Yep. Um, so there was the risk of that that maybe Medvedev just couldn't figure him out, even if he had played well against Djokovic and virtually everyone else on tour. Um, but you were there, Carl. You experienced the the magic. Talk to us about this uh, about Rafa number nineteen, Medvedev's you know emergence as maybe a superstar. What do you think about all this? I I am so impressed with Medvedev and how resourceful he is as a tennis player, and how he can come up with solutions to a shot within a point and, and, you know, within a match, even a best of five, I I don't want to over extrapolate from one tournament uh, because he hadn't really done much in grand slams before, but he hadn't done anything like he'd done in best of threes before the summer either. So every tournament where he makes the final and beats an all time great or, or plays them tough and, seems like the best of the rest uh, just adds to the evidence. And he, you know, was really able to to hang with Rafa in just about every respect, even when in some respects he probably wasn't playing his best. Like he wasn't serving consistently enough on the first serve and, and really having to defend his second serve. And yet he was broken, I don't know, about once per set. But that all makes what Rafa accomplished even greater. I mean, he's playing on his on hard courts where he's he struggled at times and struggled with injuries and had to withdraw from last year's Open in the semis or retire from a semifinal match. And he was facing break points early in the fifth set. And he was saying in the press conference later that he knows he he knows that he's in trouble in a moment like that, but he doesn't want to entertain the thought that he might lose. And he also was just very aware of the situation and knew that he was still basically tied or he said he was always ahead. I would say he wasn't ahead in that moment, but maybe he knows the uh, ELO weighted forecast and knew that he was still likely to win even down break point in the fifth set. And he, 
he toughed it out. I mean, he wasn't he he looked tired and that's a weird thing to say about him and he looked more tired than his opponent, which is even weirder, but he adjusted. He shortened points, he served and volleyed, he came to net much earlier in points than I'm used to and it worked often enough for him to win against the guy who's been nearly unbeatable on hard courts in the last month and a half. So very impressed by both of them. Great final, great best of five, probably should have been about 45 minutes shorter if Rafa, you know, respected the, the serve clock rule and had respected uh, the rule of like playing to the server's pace. But the crowd was also pretty wild and, and definitely added to the length of the match and also to the entertainment value of the match. You thought the crowd was in that plus? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think if it were kind of general murmuring or or just background chatter, it would have been less exciting. But for the crowd to get behind Medvedev the way it did and then sort of the, the rest of the crowd to rally behind Rafa, I, I like that, that part of the package. But I wasn't trying to uh, stay awake at 1 a.m. in Norway. So I, I think, you know, different perspective depending where you were. Well, I didn't see the worst, best, I guess we'll settle on most extreme of it as far as the crowd involvement goes because I, I did have to give up the ghost round 115. Um, I've, I've got other other pressures on my on my time and the idea of staying up until 2 or beyond for a, a tennis match. I just, I just couldn't do it even for this one. Um, but even in, in the first three sets and change that I saw, uh, Rafa, of course, was taking every opportunity to slow things down and, and waiting until he absolutely had to serve. I noticed uh, it wasn't always possible to watch the serve clock, but often, I think it was Ali Neely in the chair, he, was, he would start the serve clock at about the right time, but he'd frequently pause it. So it would count, count down to seven or something and then sit at seven for five seconds. And I understand that that's within the rules. It's just kind of tough to keep track of what the, what the rules are in practice. Um, but Medvedev wasn't waiting. I mean, he, he wouldn't, he wouldn't try to quick serve or anything, but he was treating it more Davis cup style and he absolutely did not wait for, for silence to fall. And I wonder since maybe, maybe it won't be as much of an issue whenever Rafa retires and, and players are used to the serve clock and the, a harder 25 second limit. But given that where the serve clock seems to fail and there are the maybe controversy is too strong a word, but there are these many controversies surrounding it. It's because of the exceptions to the 25 second rule, like a really involved crowd and the fact that players can at least subtly encourage the crowd to be more involved and slow things down even more. Do you think that maybe we should just like say there it's okay to have some crowd noise that 25 seconds is 25 seconds. And if there's some, if there's general murmuring or general noise, at when the clock's down at two seconds, you've got to serve anyway. I'd like crowd noise and crowd movement to just be accepted at every moment of a tennis match. I think it makes tennis less friendly to to would-be spectators and first-time spectators that, that they aren't. And that includes having to wait 15, 20 minutes to get into a stadium uh, in a way you never would have to for other sports this is this is a long-standing debate that we're not going to settle here, but I, I certainly think players have, like you said, in Davis Cup and other other settings, just dealt with it and played on. And 
I mean, this is not specifically against Rafa because I think every player, almost every player, would would pause to wait for silence. But it, I think, I think they could all adjust pretty quickly. Of of all the things they have to adapt to, all the time in terms of change from match to match, that's something they could navigate pretty simply. Yeah, I I strongly agree. Um. So you mentioned that Nadal was was being more aggressive coming to the net more. And that that's something that I feel like this has been a refrain, not regularly, but at least occasionally over the years, that he is willing to go forward. He's he's got a really solid net game, very smart approaching style, um, really good smash, one of those underrated parts of his game, one of the many underrated parts of his game. Uh at the point where I had to, to to give it up, it was actually Medvedev who was coming forward a lot more. There was one game where I he might have served and volleyed three times in a row, but he was he was serving and volleying pretty frequently. And that's something that I'm not sure I've seen from him at all. I mean, he He's more known for the 35-shot the rallies on grass at Queen's Club than doing something so nutty as to serve and volley. Uh, I mean, do you think that that's something that will work for him against players who are more, I mean, let's just say Djokovic, for instance. Like, Nadal was playing so conservatively in, from, in terms of his serve return position, uh, whereas someone like Djokovic would take a couple steps up and, and cut off some of the angles. Is, is this a Rafa-only strategy, or is, is Medvedev showing us that you know, he's, he's got even more tricks in his bag than, than we knew about before? I may be more hoping than projecting, but... What what I see from Medvedev makes me think that he is capable of using any tool at any time if it seems worth trying. And some of them turn out not to be worth trying. And, you know, one of the things I think was happening with him serving volleying and in general coming to net so much is that he he knew that he had to at least try to take advantage of Rafa's return position and at times rally position and either straight out benefit from trying to take advantage of it or at least push Rafa to take a less comfortable position closer to the baseline. And his one of his tactics was drop shots, and he tried a lot of drop shots. And I never saw the stats on them, so I could be off, but it seemed like he was successful well under 50% of the time, and a lot of them just missed. And serving and volleying is a good second option to try because then – there's no um, there's no time for Rafa shot to bounce and Rafa to get into position, and you can pull him out wide with that extreme return position and then volley into the open court. I don't think Medvedev's volleys are great. I think he could probably improve them a bit and maybe maybe should if he is trying to have all these options, lots more than other players. But already it's good enough to be a really good tactic uh, when he has, you know, when he set it up, so he just needs to hit a short volley to one side of the court on a ball above the net. And he also showed some interesting technique on on shots at the net that were successful, like the sort of over-the-shoulder backhand, somewhere between a smash and a swinging volley that that landed yeah. for a winner. I remember uh, that one. That was I, I laughed out loud at that shot. My sister looked at me like I was crazy, but yeah, that, I've never seen that shot before. Whatever that was. Yeah, and I don't know if he's ever hit it before. I mean, he's he's somewhere between like 
very deliberate and, and improvisational genius. Um, and we're talking about the guy who lost. So full credit again to Rafa for overcoming all that. I do think, you know, you pointed out that, that we've said this a lot about Rafa. I still think his rate of coming to net in in the final and, and also his rate of serve and volleying and his rate of coming early in rallies in positions that are riskier than he's used to seem pretty high, that he was really willing to force the action. And so it was, in addition to it just being a very close match between two great players playing well, it was fun to see them do things that were probably not their plan A against most players. So it seems like the consensus emerged very quickly that this was a great match. Both of these guys were playing well. I mean, especially Medvedev outperformed what a lot of expectations were. but we're also, this is all happening at a time when the big three, at least very generally, is in decline. Like, Federer is not a factor. He's having physical problems for not the first time in his career, but that's generally not an issue for him. Djokovic is out with an injury. We're not sure what his future holds. We've talked about this over the course of the year, that even though Djokovic has dominated, it doesn't seem like he's 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 not peak Djokovic. I mean, 90% of peak Djokovic is still amazingly good and good enough to be number one in the world, but he's not there. So com- compared to hardcourt Rafa, which, I mean, has been a great player over the years, won slams before, you know, how close do you think last night's Rafael Nadal was to peak hardcourt Rafa? Uh, that's a good question. I'm thinking of the slams he won before. 2017, he kind of cruised but he also had a pretty easy drive and easier than this year at the u.s open and and he did drop some sets uh 2009 was two giant battles at the australian open against verdasco and federer um i think 2010 u.s open was maybe peak rafa on hard courts i remember his serve was really fast and he was winning matches easily and he beat a very good djokovic in a four set final um, 2013 U.S. Open was a little flukier that he that he won that final against Djokovic. I think he was close, like maybe more than 90 percent, but not not quite peak, but pretty incredible for for 33. Uh, and he and as you said, he came in having won Rogers Cup over Medvedev, so it felt like the culmination of a very good hardcore lead up and also just an incredible season on every surface. Yeah, it's, it's pretty impressive. And it, it, it's been fascinating the last couple of years, how much the, the momentum has flip flopped. I mean, we have a lower standard for Federer because he is so much older than, than Nadal and Djokovic. So we're always kind of expecting him to sail into the sunset, but he, he keeps, keeps at least putting himself in the mix to win more slams or coming within one point as he did just a couple months ago at Wimbledon. And Djokovic is staying so close to the top of his game, but when it felt like Djokovic was running away with things and he was going to cruise to win four or five more slams, now he's injured and Nadal has the one more slam. So I feel like it's become a Tennis Abstract podcast regular feature to explain that we don't really want to talk about the, the greatest of all time argument, but let's do it anyway. And then do it anyway for the next 35 minutes. Um, Federer is at 20, Nadal's at 19, Djokovic is at 16. And I updated my my very simple slam forecasting algorithm. And a month ago when I when I created this thing, it, it spat out some pretty funny numbers that 
it expected that Djokovic would win four more, Nadal would win two more, and Federer would win no more. So we'd end up with these players retiring all tied at 20. Now that's changed because not only is Nadal 1-1, but because he won one, the algorithm likes him more. I mean, it, it's, it sees this really impressive 2019 season and expects him to carry that forward. So he's he's not only at 19 now, but the algorithm expects him to win three and a half more. So it expects a, an end result of 22 and a half um, and then Federer to stay at 20, and then Djokovic to be at 19 or 20. So still pretty optimistic about Djokovic, and rightfully so, given what he's accomplished lately. But, I mean, do you think that... I mean, does the, does this result of the U.S. Open kind of revise what we expect from Rafa that much? I mean, I think in the past, if you expected Rafa to win two more slams, we're talking about the 2020 French Open and the 2021 French Open. I mean, that's the logical prediction for him but now that he's he's won the u.s open looked good doing it does it feel right to you to say he could win three or four more slams and maybe that includes one or two more hardcore majors yeah i i trust the algorithm it makes sense to me i I think that one of the truisms about rafa for a long time is that he'll be the favorite at the french open as long as he's healthy enough to show up and that doesn't feel sustainable. I mean, it doesn't. I don't expect that when we're recording episode seven thousand and twenty forty six or whatever, uh, that he'll still be the favorite. But every time he excels away from clay, I think it says something about his overall health and and level and level relative to the rest of the field that makes me even more confident his chances at the next French Open and maybe the one after that too. So I think we're probably baking in at least two French Opens into that three and a half, uh, or at least about two. So the question is, could he win one or two elsewhere? And when he made the semis, uh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah. He made the semis at every slam this year. He made, yeah, uh, final and you know he he was blown away in the Australian Open final, but the semi against Federer at the at Wimbledon was fairly close. Um, it feels like he's right there, and he, even even in um, last year too, he had very good Slam results. I think we're overshadowed because he pulled out of tournaments with injury, but he won a lot of matches before he did, and he was very close to beating Djokovic last year at Wimbledon and then being the favorite in the final against Anderson. So he could he could be well past 20 at this point. We could point to a couple of recent close calls. Yeah, I mean, it, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out because, like I say, the momentum has shifted so many times, and, and right now it feels like such an accomplishment what Nadal has done, and it is, but it feels like it will have a momentum that carries beyond this event, and... I mean, that, that's always easy to say when we're kind of in the, the afterglow of the victory. We assume that th- this victory means a lot and maybe it will, maybe it won't. But um, w- I've updated the the men's ELO ratings through the U.S. Open and already generated my, my early forecast for the Australian Open based on the current ELO ratings. And... What I what they say right now is they give Djokovic a 32% chance of winning, which is pretty much in line with the, with most top seeds at slams. Federer at 25, Rafa at 22, and then Medvedev at 11. So it's it is four months away. It's an off season away. Lots of lots of things could happen in the meantime. But uh, what do you think of those numbers? Does that does that 
jive with your intuition? Is there something that you would adjust very much from that? I, you know, it's, it's hard immediately after to assess what to make of Djokovic and Federer having injury problems on the way out of the tournament. Uh, ben Marsh, my former colleague at 538, said it'd be best to just ignore retirements and forecasts in, in terms of, you know, do, do we overweight them because a player couldn't even finish a match? And the answer is no, it's, it's a one-off. Uh, so I'm curious what, what you think about that. But assuming that... Well, I think Ben Morris and I disagree on that. And he's not to, he's he's not consistent in picking a side. Because when you guys built your, your ELO model of 538, which I know is, is, is long dormant, but I think Ben included retirements. And then when I built my ELO model, I didn't. So I explicitly do not include completed matches or sorry in uncompleted matches in my forecast and i guess what we could be talking about two different things like i'm asking you to to make like see to the pants adjustments on what the computer's saying and that might imply that you're taking into consideration uh injuries but but yeah i mean it, statistically there's almost no effect like i think when i did it you get a little tiny benefit by just flat out ignoring retirements but it's one of those things where like it, that some of the mistakes that ELO forecasts give you come from those times where the injuries do matter. Uh, so it, it's, it's a tough question to answer. And maybe there's not a, a really clear yay or nay conclusion you can draw. Well, I think you and Ben agree now. I mean, Ben made that ELO forecast by deadline and then tinkered with it a lot after. So I guess he found the same thing you did, which is reassuring. Um, so I will... I will follow that and and say that these forecasts basically make sense to me. Although if you had asked me to guess them, which is maybe a different question, I would have I would have knocked Federer down a few pegs. I think that because Nadal and Djokovic have owned the slams recently, it's felt like Federer is out of the picture. But when you think of his results and how far he's gotten since the last time he won one, he's been very much in the picture. So it 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 seems right and uh it also seems right that he'd be third but maybe not a distant third i'm a little surprised although maybe not when i think about it more that the four top players now that medvedev is in there i don't think we're yet going to call them a big four until he wins a slam they, well, medvedev is like four inches taller than andy murray though good point so the, the big four is even bigger but his serve speed is kind of like in in the same height range as the as the rest. <laughs> True. Um, they combine for ninety one percent win probability, which is, yeah, may, is maybe higher even than the U.S. Open. But anyway, it's just it's pretty staggering. Yeah, I think it is higher, um, and that's that is big four territory. And I I, I made a note here that um, I, I mean I don't have historical forecasts handy to check this out, but. I can't remember the last time I saw a player with more than a 10% chance of winning a, a, a men's slam uh, who wasn't the big four. And I think you'd have to go to the pre-big four era and maybe not even then because the field was so much more fragmented. You just wouldn't have four guys that good. So at least at least if you take Elo's interpretation of Medvedev's summer, um, then then yeah, he's he's right in that mix. And I do want to talk about since we we accidentally segued into him being big, um, he is six six, so he's about the same size as as Zverev, maybe weighs like thirty five pounds less, but 
Because Zverev's skinny and Medvedev is is just like the the next level of skinny. But in one thing that's come up over the years when we have prospects who are tall, often with really big serves, like the, the maybe Milos Ronich is somebody who fits in this category. Uh, they generally don't ascend to number one. And I think the tallest number one we've ever had on the men's side is Merit Safin. And I think he was 6'4", held number one very briefly. After that, you've got, I think, Candy Murray's 6'3". But mostly it's guys who are 6'1 and 6'2", who are, are number one. Um, and it, is, it, we talked about this with Zverev a year or two ago. It felt like Zverev was sort of destined to be a future number one, and he was going to break that mold. He was going to be a 6'6", six, six, number one, and maybe keep it for a long time. Now that's, with every slam that goes by, uh, that becomes less likely. But Medvedev now is the, maybe not the heir apparent, but the closest thing we have to an heir apparent, and he is that big of a guy. I mean, do you think he can he can break that mold and whatever it is that prevented tall guys from breaking through like won't apply to him? I mean, I think that he plays very differently, so maybe that mold won't apply it does. It seems like maybe the taller you are, the more vulnerable you are to injury. But that that could be a study of its own. Um, but the way, like, if you could just see the Hawkeye data or some other movement tracking data, uh, you know, the equivalent of baseball fielding stats of like eighty-seven percent of center fielders wouldn't have gotten to this ball. What percent of ATP top 100 would have gotten to certain balls and not just gotten to them, but gotten them back. And in Medvedev's case, not just gotten them back, but gotten them back in a useful way. I, I think he would have the profile of a much smaller player, not quite a five, seven officially Diego Schwartzman, but you know, I think he, the fact that he can hang in tough rallies with Rafa and Djokovic and get to balls that would be point enders against most players suggests that he's got a very different game style that potentially could take him a lot farther. Do you think he's better at that than Zverev? Uh, that's a good question. Because um, I think we we could and maybe we have said something very similar about Zverev defending his chances of defying the, the past and being a number one. Yeah. I mean, I think that, again, this is probably weighting this U.S. Open much too heavily, but there's a contrast between, like, can you do that on a specific point or maybe 50 points, and can you do it over a five-set match? And also, do you get into five-set matches that you don't need to because you you can't do it consistently or uh, other parts of your game rise and fall? And it feels like at this point now it's fair to say Zverev really does have a best-of-five problem, although his game has dropped in all formats and Medvedev did until this tournament. So maybe he does and just temporarily shook it off. But, um, that, that did seem to kind of add up for Zverev in a way that it didn't in the same way for Medvedev. But again, you know, it's like Medvedev could have won that, that fifth set against Schwartzman. We could be having a different conversation now. So don't want to say anything too definitive. Yeah. And, I mean, of course, this is not a, a physical law. I mean, there's not that big a difference between a guy who's 6'6 and a guy who's 6'4 or 6'3. Uh, we could be entering a, a weak era once the big three retire and maybe whoever is number one after that isn't as good as other number ones. Like, uh, uh, There's all sorts of ways someone could 
become number one and, and, and fit a different mold than, than number ones in the past. But it, it could be that Medvedev is just as athletic as you can be at that height in the ways we're talking about. It's just being able to resourcefully get balls back with like really, really good tactical smarts, let's say. And I, I think you, I would argue that Medvedev is tactically a lot stronger right now than Zverev is. And maybe that's all the difference. Maybe if, if you tacked Medvedev's brain onto Zverev's game, then you'd get the same results out of Zverev. Um, but... Yeah, it's always something to keep an eye on because it's. I felt I feel like we were all just counting. We were just counting down the days until Zverev took over. Um, I mean, maybe we didn't expect the big four or the big three to, to last as long as they have. So we expected the the road would clear ahead of Zverev earlier than it has. But I don't think we expected other people to leapfrog him the way they have. Yeah, and it's a reminder that players peak at different ages, and Zverev may not have peaked, but. You know, to say, well, Medvedev did this at 23, so he'll definitely be back here many times, which several people said during the trophy ceremony. We'll see is something Rafa says all the time, and he's always right. Always right, yeah. Um, so speaking of, of age and peaks and various things with these top players, um, this is probably a good time to switch over to talk about the women's final. Uh, really big accomplishment for Bianca Andreescu, um, first-time slam winner. Also a really big uh, big accomplishment for first-time slam winner Arena Sabalenka. I'd just like to say for the record, I know your regular listeners are, are as excited about Arena Sabalenka as I am. Uh, I'd like to say, just point out that in the past when I've made my aggressive um, forecasts for Sabalenka, I don't think I've ever specified I meant singles. So... When I said she was going to win the next 20 slams, uh, I, I was thinking maybe it would be doubles with Elise Mertens. So one down, 19 to go. I'd say we're in good shape. So Andreescu had a great tournament, big final against Serena. Um, I think the biggest question for me coming out of this match, Andreescu looked great to me. I mean, almost start to finish in this match. Serena didn't look that bad, I mean, although she wasn't in the match for most of it. But Serena made some comments afterward that she felt like, I think she said the way she played was inexcusable. She felt like the real Serena wasn't out there. She needed to find a way to get the real Serena to show up during finals. She seemed to be saying that she played well below the level that would be expected or she expected of herself. I don't know that I buy that. And I'm curious what you think, Carl. Was this... In, was Serena that far below the level that she should have been at? No, I I didn't. That didn't make much sense to me either. And it's surprising because sometimes when she loses, she says that her opponents keep playing their best tennis when they face her, and that that makes her have to to step it up. And I think that would have been a fair assessment. Not that Andreescu was playing badly by any means coming into that final or into the tournament. I, I do think that there's so much focus on double faults that they get weighted too heavily in terms of deciding how well a player played. Like, so much of the focus about Zverev losing was about his double faults, and we've talked about, like, how aggressive you are on second serve, and maybe that's why you're double faulting, and you could look at second serve win percentage. Serena's second serve win percentage was bad, although it got better a lot better during the match. But 
I think because she was double faulting and double faulting in critical moments, she could say she played really poorly on big points, and that would be reasonable. Although she did win four straight games when facing elimination in the second set, which was pretty good. So I I don't know. I, I'm not sure how it all balances out, but the the idea that she just played a terrible match is does not square to me with what I saw and what the stats suggest either. And I think it's it's really tough to really tough to see and also difficult to quantify. Hopefully it'll be easier to quantify when we figure out how to do that than it is to see in the moment. But it when you have a really aggressive player, like when they when they lose, they're going to have these pretty ugly numbers with quite a few winners, but way more unforced errors, maybe some double faults like you point out. Uh, maybe not so great second serve winning percentage, as you also point out, because maybe their opponent's aggressive too and teeing off on the second serve. So if Serena has a really bad day, you get these numbers, high enforced errors, high double faults, and so on. If Andreescu has a great day and returns really well and keeps the ball in play, then Serena's going to have the same numbers. So if if you if we're going to look at a set of 10 matches and have these statistical indicators what do we look at to distinguish the Serena had a bad day matches from the Andreescu was playing great and basically took the racket out of her hands or forced her to have a mediocre day or whatever it is like how do we apportion credit for those all those Serena unforced errors let's say yeah, with current stats and even with with charting like you and your your team does, it's it's not easy. I mean, w- one simple adjustment would be you look at on sometimes you'll you'll see a five set match in the men's game and someone will say, "Oh my god, there were 80 unforced errors by the loser." But of course it was five sets. So you want to adjust per point. And then I think the next level adjustment is you adjust per shot. So if Serena's unforced error rate per shot is about what it usually is, then maybe it's because she has to play a lot of extra balls and she eventually is going to miss and maybe she's going to, you know, get less, have to go for tougher shots with smaller margins because of how well her opponent is retrieving the ball. So I think that that's sort of what you could do with what's available now. Long term, I'd love to see some kind of estimate, even if it's rough, based on available data of like what percent of players would have gotten that ball. And if the answer is that Serena hit some balls that 73% of the time would have been winners or forced errors, but didn't, then you can adjust and say like, what would, what would her shots have done to the average opponent or even the average final opponent and gotten, get more perspective here on, on whether she was playing at her best level or not. Yeah, I think that would be the end goal. I've tried to do that a little bit with match charting data, but it's just not that granular. I mean, it's so much more granular than any other publicly available source. But even if you're looking at returns, which we we group into uh, nine different zones in the court, like shallow, deep, and very deep, and then the three side-to-side dimensions as well. So the nine zones as well as... Some, some things you could deduce from the type of shot. Like you'd assume a backhand return is stronger and more difficult to return than a slice return, for example. So you, you, maybe you can uh, divvy up returns into 30 or 40 categories. But even when you do that, if you have a forehand return down the middle, deep but not very deep, then 
that still obscures a ton of information. I mean, that, that can be a blistering shot that the, the server can only chip back. That can be a sort of rallying shot that someone like Serena would go for a winner off of. I mean, I think you pretty much have to have Hawkeye data. Or at the very least, you need to have somebody making a judgment. I mean, I would hate that. I, I think that would be... I mean, I, I wouldn't want that data. But, I mean, I, I think some people would attack that problem by saying... By having an, having a human analyst look at the return and analyze how aggressive a shot it was and, and make judgments based on that. But, um, but yeah, it's a tough problem. I mean, I, and I think that recognizing it's a tough problem is is a good first step to being a smarter analyst just watching with your eyes um just being aware of the fact that you know someone who has i don't even know what her unforced error tally was but um if someone does have 60 unforced errors in two sets that's not necessarily bad performance i mean unless serena's playing out of her mind and playing against someone who's not playing that well she's going to hit a lot of more unforced errors that's just the the nature of her game uh, but they aren't necessarily because she's having a bad day I think that was a, a big factor against Andreescu. Andreescu just forced her into those situations um, and and kept getting balls back that a lot of other players wouldn't and, and getting them back in a way that forced Serena to, to do more than just swat them away, as she often is able to do. On In the two sets, Serena had 33 winners. Guess how many unforced errors she had per the official stats? Hmm... I'm going to say for rhetorical reasons, 41. 33. Really? She won nine fewer points. She won 44% of return points to 51% for Andrescu. It was was a close match and pretty well played from the winner to unforced error ratio. Well, the reason I said 41 is I, I wrote an article a few years ago about the winner unforced error ratio and commentators really, really, really like those numbers, partly because they have this preconceived notion that uh, a one-to-one ratio is sort of the standard. So if you're hitting more winners than unforced errors, you're, you're ahead. If you're hitting more unforced errors than winners, then you're behind. But what I found was that it's really different by gender. And for women, I think the average ratio was was 0.8. So you'd hit 25% more unforced errors than winners. And you're, you're, it's an average WTA performance. Um, so if that's why I've said 33 to 41. That's, a, that's about average. Um, the commentators wouldn't have agreed. But if she's 33, if she's basically even, then that, that's better than even. That, that's an above average performance. And against someone who's playing like Bianca was, then that's even more above average. I mean, setting aside the, the clutch point factor um, as to when she was, was hitting the errors, then, I mean, that would win most matches, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. It, it really, it, it does not square with what she said about her performance. And, um, you know, it, it's also unclear whether a player herself would say the same thing about her performance a week or a year later than a few minutes after a match. So this was, I, I, this feels wrong, but I'm, I double-checked it. So this, is, this is her fourth major final out of the last six slams, right? Wimbledon yep. in the U.S. Open two years in a row? That's right. So, and, and I didn't tally what everyone else has done, but that, that, that's number one and not even close if you're just counting slam finals for women. Nobody else has that many. 
Um, do you think she's the best player on tour right now? I think she's the best player at Slam. She's not so much on tour, but <laughs> yeah, she, she isn't even on tour. So that, that's a that's a, an easy question to answer. But yeah, I mean, so it, I mean, in that sense, it, it, should we treat her as the favorite going into pretty much every match? Again, I usually defer to the data and or the data, the algorithm, I guess. And Elo has has earned that trust, and by Elo, she's not. So I shouldn't, but it does seem like at slams, she should be the favorite in just about every match. Maybe not at the French because of recent history, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's (laughs) tennis has a stupid problem where when someone loses a lot in finals, they are discounted more than if they had lost early in tournaments. On the other hand, Serena did lose the four finals, so maybe it's fair to say how many players have made four semis, because otherwise you're sort of cherry-picking her best result from the tournaments, um, even though that's where she ended each time. But even there, I think she's been the most consistent or one of a couple of the most consistent women uh, in the sport since coming back from from having a baby, and um, maybe has been getting better over time as well. The Wimbledon final was particularly one-sided, but I think we both give a little more of that credit to Halep than to her. So, yeah, I, I see her as probably the favorite, but very, very close with a lot of contenders going into Australia. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned earlier some of, some of Serena's standard comments, pointing out that you know, her opponent played out of her mind. Like She, she gave that standard line against Halep, but... Um, but I think that result might have been based more on Serena playing badly. I mean, not that Simona didn't play great. I mean, I would never say something negative about Simona, especially on the record. But, but yeah, it's 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 a bit of a mismatch there. Um, one more thing about Serena before we move on is something that we talked about. I think after Wimbledon, and and you gave me the the, the prompt for a, a, something that I ended up writing about that. Serena has 23 slams, which is the most in the open era, but Margaret Court, who played both before and after the beginning of the open era, has 24 slams. So Serena's been chasing that number for a long time. As we've just said, she had four opportunities to win a match and tie that mark. Uh, It seems like that might be a bit of a mental factor that she's trying to get over that hump and can't. But you pointed out that that one of the reasons that that people... um, want to discount Margaret Court's achievement, aside from the fact that a lot of those slams are before the open era started. So it's 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 not the way we normally count these things. But 11 of Margaret Court's Grand Slam titles came at the Australian Open before the Australian Open was as prominent as it is now. So for those of you who are interested in that line of argument and, and how much that matters, I did write something about that this past week that's, that's on the blog and found that um, with a really conservative discounting, um, probably giving the Australian Open from the 60s and early 70s more credit than it deserved, uh, that did knock Margaret Court down into the low 20s and, and would make Serena pretty clearly the, the winner. And if you took a more aggressive stance, which might be right, we just don't have barely any data to work with from the 60s to understand how these tournaments compare, uh, I, mean, I think you could make a good argument that that you should 
take half of those off the title if you off of her total if you if you adjust for how much weaker the Australian Open draws were so you could get her down to the maybe the 17 range um, down where Chrissy Everett and Martina Navratilova are so it, it seems to me like it, it's not really a, a meaningful comparison to say that Serena's chasing Margaret Court at 24 I mean of course that's the way the record books are always going to look but I think there's a really solid analytical argument to be made that I mean, it's just, it's just not the same thing, even if you don't try to make an error adjustment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One, of, one of the people I interviewed for 30 Love th- during this Open was talking about this same topic with me. I don't think while we were recording, but several times he said something like, you know, the draw at those old Australian Opens was like Margaret and her sister. And eventually I said, hey, you got to come up with a better analogy because Serena's sister was in most of her draws <laughs> and that didn't make them easy. Um, but yeah, I mean, those draws were almost entirely Australian in some years and also 32 draws in some cases, not even just 64. Does, does that sound right? Yeah, that is right. So, I mean, it's not just even whether the best players were there, but like how, how much, how you were just basically guaranteed a spot in the third round effectively. Yeah. And, and that's, there's so many problems making, making cross era comparisons in tennis. And that applies to men's as much as women's. It applies to other slams as much as the Australian open. I mean, as, as you just said, that it, even the, the other slams were 64s, I think some were 96s for a while after that. So one of the things that's so hard about winning slams is they are the tournaments where you have to win seven matches in a row. But, you know, if you want to compare Serena to Margaret Court or Chris Everett, then, like you're not comparing her to players who had to win seven matches in a row every one of these times. So I, I generally prefer just to wave away the cross-era comparisons by saying we can't do it. We just have to make this assumption that the errors are equal. But, I mean, they're not. They're, they're really not. So the problem is if, when you when you acknowledge that, then all the interesting stuff about making cross-era comparisons, like comparing Serena and Margaret Court, comparing Roger Federer and Rod Laver, they they cease to be interesting because when you do acknowledge these things, then, I mean, obviously Serena Williams is, has achieved more than Margaret Court ever did. I mean, aside from the number of trophies that they possess, uh, Serena is the clear, more accomplished, greater player. Um so it, it just depends what sort of argument you want to have or you want what sort of argument you want to be available to to make and keep yourself busy be, between sets or between service points for Rafael Nadal. Um, we are basically at the hour mark and we had a whole, well, I had a whole diatribe I was, was ready to unleash. Um, maybe we should save this for a, a future uh, a future episode and, and quit while we're ahead. But Carl, you, I know you spent a ton of time at the U.S. Open, of which I'm extremely jealous, and you had to talk to a lot of interesting people at that time. I mean, any anything we haven't talked about is interesting? Any final thoughts to, to wrap up this year's U.S. Open? Uh, well, you, you had offered some players to discuss, and I'd love to hear what you think of any of them, if you have 10, 20-second capsules on them. Oh, I'm not sure if I do. Um, I do want to talk about Matteo Berrettini. He's come out of, I mean, he's come out of nowhere far more than Daniel Medvedev has. And here he is, a first-time semifinalist, um, pushed Rafael Nadal really hard in the first set. Um, basically the same age as Medvedev. He's 23. 
I think he's up to number six in the in my ELO ratings. So I mean, he, he's not he's not at the same level as Medvedev yet. But I mean, it feels like if a couple balls bounced a different direction, he'd be close, and we could be talking about him instead of Medvedev, or we could have been looking at a Medvedev Berrettini final, which I'm sure would have gotten fantastic TV ratings in the U.S. Uh, but I mean, now that you've gotten a chance to, to see some Matteo Berrettini, I know a lot of fans probably didn't before the U S open this year. Um, he's won clay titles. He had a really great grass season, at least leading up to Wimbledon. Uh, do you think he's someone we're going to see in the mix for the next several years? Someone who will be in there with Medvedev, like maybe a top five player in the not too distant future. Maybe I think his, Everybody knows that his backhand is is what to play, which is not very surprising. That's a good default starting position for most matches. And I think Rafa really exposed it. I think Rafa can expose a right-hander's backhand better than anyone else. So maybe Berrettini keeps winning most matches against players other than Rafa. But it it does seem like having such a clear weakness could could hold him back from top five, but I could, I could certainly see him continuing to win a lot of matches, even making the top 10, even as a shot at the, I think he has a shot at the tour finals this year, just from having had such a good, well-rounded season. And he is, he, he hasn't played that much on hard courts at the tour level uh, before this open. So going to the semi suggests that there's a ton of potential there. Yeah. It feels a little bit like he is a, uh... He is a stable Nick Kyrgios. He's got this really big serve. Uh, he can do a lot with it. And you're right. There's there's clear weaknesses in his game. But, I mean, it's sort of a different angle of what we were talking about with the tall guys reaching number one. I don't think you can reach number one anymore with, with a, a big hole in your game like that. So I wouldn't project Berrettini as a future number one. But... I think you can be top five with some pretty glaring weaknesses. I mean, Milos Ronic was number three. He was top five for a while. I mean, you can think of a lot of examples of guys who've been able to sustain that. Um, and I think maybe this serve compared with what seems like like a good head on his shoulders, I mean, that, that could be enough. Yeah, you're right. Ronic is a good example. Um, one more player as we creep over the 60-minute mark is Taylor Townsend. I think we would have spent a lot of time on her last week had we been able to do an episode midway through the tournament, but she was a surprise fourth rounder. She came through qualifying. I mean, she's someone who got a lot of attention as a prospect in American tennis, but that's maybe two or three years ago now that she was really considered a top prospect. Um, So no wild card this time, but that meant she won a lot of matches, including, unfortunately for me, upsetting Simona Halep. But what's more interesting is the way she did it. I mean, she she came to the net a ton. She served and volleyed. And we've talked about that being rare in the men's game and unusual coming from Nadal and Medvedev. But it's even more rare in the women's game. And I'm guessing you have more interesting things to say about this than I do, Carl. I mean, do you think that... Is this sort of a one-off? Did, did she just sort of capture the hometown energy and, and turn that into a couple of good wins? Or, I mean, do you think Townsend can can play in a really unorthodox, aggressive way and and become a, a, I don't know what what level I'm talking about here since her, her ranking is so low right now, but I mean, could this become something we see from a, let's say, top 20 player? Yeah, I think it's possible. I think what we talked about with the men's final was having it as an option and using it when you needed it for your own energy or to counter what your opponent was doing. 
And Townsend herself showed some flexibility. She tried using the same tactic in the fourth round against the eventual champ, Andrescu, and it really wasn't working well. And when she hung back, she started winning a lot more points and won the second set, which in retrospect, given how the tournament ended, was a great achievement. And I was really impressed with with her just you know, figuring out, hey, this thing that like everyone has been talking about around me that helped me beat the Wimbledon champ may not be the right move right now. And I've got enough game elsewhere to to hang with this player who's been on a hot streak and, and even win a set. So I think that that was promising. I think, you know, just unflinching, unfailing serve and volley is going to fall um, without a good plan B. Yeah, that that sounds right to me. Uh, and final thought before we we wrap this one up. I mean, since you brought this back around to Andreescu, I mean, Andreescu did lose a, a number of sets in the tournament, and it's a bit surprising that she um, she was able to straight set Serena in the final. But um, we we did the same thing that I think a lot of the American press is doing. That Serena is such an interesting subject that we kind of skipped over Andreescu, who has accomplished this amazing thing, and. I feel like we've done rounds of this over the last couple of years at Women's Slams. We have these new names emerging and and winning slams for the first time, climbing the rankings. She's just now in the top 10 for the first time. I think she's number five in today's rankings. Um, But she's, I mean, she's basically undefeated this year. I mean, if she hadn't been been injured for most of the spring, I mean, she pulled out of Miami and, and she didn't miss the French Open, but she only played one match in in Paris and wasn't really back to normal until Toronto. So she's missed a lot of this year, but when she's played, she basically hasn't lost. Uh, and we've talked so much the last couple of years about the uh, equality at the top of the women's game, how anyone can lose to anybody in any given day. That hasn't really been true for her. So if, if she had played at this level without missing time this year, I mean, we'd be looking at someone who's maybe number one already. Uh, do you think that maybe six months from now, nine months from now, when she's got a full year of tennis under her belt, is Andreescu going to be number one? Well, where she is in the race and where she is in losing, I think, four matches this year and being 8-0 and against top 10 opponents, it, it looks pretty good. The two caveats I'll give, one, if she's had injury problems this year, she may have more injury problems this year. I sure hope not, but she just played a very intense Grand Slam. And she may also uh, preventatively, you know, take some time off. And, you know, the other thing that I, I always look at when I see a run like this is, is she dominating opponents or are these a lot of a lot of these wins close? And a whole lot of her, her wins have been close this year. And I think there's probably some element of she's got the endurance when she is healthy and maybe some element of she's clutch. But in general, I expect those results to kind of settle down to to a more normal rate of winning some close matches and losing some close matches. I mean, the semifinal certainly looked like it was probably going to uh, to a third set against Bencic. So... I I'm I, I think she'll lose a few more matches if she plays a lot more this year, but she still could finish number one because of how um, how close it is at the top. And 
this time last year, we were coming to terms with Naomi Osaka as a new Grand Slam champion, and we were speculating what her career totals would look like. Uh, I feel like we have to do the same thing with Andreescu. So she's she's up to one slam in her career. What do you think her career slam total is? And I've I've got a number too, so I'll 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 spring that on you after you sh- you give me yours. Seven. Seven. I was gonna say five. Seven feels. Seven's a lot after somebody wins the first one. I would love to have someone who was who was that good for long enough to win seven. Even five feels pretty aggressive, but I'll stick with it. Yeah, what, my what... factors that went into it included 19, the 8-0 and o thing, and that she's done a whole lot away from slams. Yeah, I mean, and there's certainly the potential to do even more. I mean, and it, you gave some good reasons why we should probably discount her one-loss record this year, uh, at least a little bit, but if if those prove not to be true, then, I mean, holy crap, we've got an absolute superstar on our hands who we just need to see solidify her position at the top of the game. And now that we are two slams since Osaka's last victory, I mean, after after Australia, we were having these these tricky conversations about how much to expect from her. She's got two slams already. What do you think her slam total looks like now? Five. Five. I'm going to go with 2.7. I'm assuming that in a few years, you know, analytics will catch up with tennis and we'll start awarding fractional slams. Um, but I was kind of waiting for the laugh track there, but we don't have one of those. <laughs> and it also wasn't that funny. Yeah, it's it, it's, it feels like sh- she's just... It, it, she hasn't lost a step, literally, because that's not what happened. But... Seems like metaphorically, she's she's lost a step and kind of fallen back into the pack. And I feel like our our median projection for for slam titles for players in the top ten to fif- top fifteen WTA pack right now, it's not even one slam. Especially since Sabalenka is going to start winning single slams as well. Um, but it will be interesting to see whether Osaka can bounce back. I and mean, she she lost to Benchic here, which. I mean, in, in retrospect, is a an okay loss. I mean, Benchich had a really good tournament, but um, Osaka really hasn't played like the back-to-back slam winner. Maybe not since Australia, since the second slam. So lots of different directions that could go. Um, so I think that's a good note to wrap things up on um, as we're well over our hour. Carl, as always, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. Listeners, thank you as well, and be sure to check out the Thirty Love podcast. I think we're going to slow down our podcasting schedule a little bit in in the fall, and maybe come back when there's when there's more high level tennis, and not including Labor Cup. So keep an eye out for that either on my Twitter or the Tennis Abstract site, Heavy Topspin Blog, all that stuff. There'll be some new content, and of course the cool new player pages that I'll be wasting a lot of time um, poking my way through. So enjoy all that. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.